Hello, horror fans, and welcome to Polly Hall's The Taxidermist's Lover. I'm Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each episode of Polly Hall's gothic tale, The Taxidermist's Lover. This was the first book I read when I first joined the CamCat team, and I was hooked. It reads like poetry. But that's not the only reason I'm excited about sharing this story. No. The Taxidermist's Lover is one of those unputdownable books that grabs hold of you and doesn't let go. A book that twists your stomach into knots as you feel desire, love, and agony all at once. It's a book to live in. When Scarlet meets Henry, a passionate love affair commences. As they become further involved, her love for his work as a taxidermist grows as well. Now, on Christmas Day, the whole world has come to a halt. But something is restless in the house Scarlet shares with Henry. She casts her mind back to the previous January to search for meaning in her cold new world surrounded by dead, stuffed creatures. Camcat Publishing presents The Taxidermist Lover by Polly Hall Narrated by Justine Eyre. For Mum and Dad. You are a wonderful, complex, fucked up mess, you once said to me. Sometimes when you passed these judgments, I would flinch, as if the words were darts or sharp tools piercing my skin. That old saying... Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, does not make sense. Words can be the most damaging of all things. They have life, power, intensity. Just as this place, our home, shapes us into new beings over time. The world has frozen around us with icy precision, a closing in and sealing off, like a scar healing shut over an abscess. It is a process occurring at a rate immeasurable to the human eye. This peat-packed land of water, leet and marsh, has been isolated and stilled. Everything waits. But out of that stillness comes a word, born from circumstance. The word, unfurling. For nothing is truly still, is it? Even ice contracts and expands, creaks and crystallizes. It has a voice of its own, speaks in eerie groans, like the split trunk of an old willow in the wind. It lives and breathes. It transforms. The roads are compacted like a skating rink, and the biting wind entraps breath as fine particles, each molecule of heat visible as it cools. Bodies become tense. Cruel black ice shines with no sign of thaw. Condensation makes window panes translucent, weeps in solemn drips as if yearning for change. The light here is movable. It shifts like the surface of water. 
candlelight moves, and I want to touch the flames. I want to send a message to the starlings for them to draw in the sky for you. Can you see? One tells another, then another, then another, a whispered message from wingtip to wingtip. They rise up from where they sleep in the reed beds to the misty sky to create an aerial display. Murmurations over this summer land rustle like ash, falling slowly onto china dishes. I throw my will around their swarming mass as if they were sardines in a frenzied run across a faraway ocean. I make them turn and separate into darkened shapes, a heron diving, a wave crashing, confetti lifting to form the shape of a bride, a heart, a pine tree, and the letters, one after another, to spell I-L-O-V-E-Y-O-U. The Taxidermist Lover will resume after this short message from the CamCat team. Hey there, lovers of story. Do you find this book unputdownable? Are you itching to hear how it ends? Would you like to have a copy you can keep forever? This week, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway. One lucky winner will receive the audiobook of The Taxidermist Lover for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy. January. Do you remember January as I do? I see it as the death of one of many beginnings. Or could it have been the beginning of the end? Depends how you look at it. I know that things were never quite the same after you started mixing up the species. You need to specialise, I said. Find a niche. I hear cased mammals are making a comeback. Or how about mystical menageries? You looked at me, your moustache twitching slightly with amusement. A crabbit or a stocks, I offered. What? You huffed. A crabbit is a crow crossed with a rabbit. I could see you mulling over the combinations in your head, picturing the sleek iridescence of the crow's breast feathers set against the smooth down of an American albino rabbit. And a stox, you guessed, is a stoat crossed with a fox. No, a stork, actually. I imagined the body of a red fox, its flame-orange fur contrasted with the angelic white of a stork's wingspan, a flying, majestic vixen. A stork! Yes, a stork! The cogs were set in motion. That was when I knew he would not return to the pampered pooches, cradling their favourite toy on their favourite cushion, their cute little necks twisted in a final gesture of compliance, or the coarse hair of a stag, tongue lolling in shock from the gunshot that centred on its final rut to the afterlife. There was a woman who came to you once with a bald Pomeranian. It had been petted so much after its initial taxidermy that the fur on its head had worn thin. It looked like a tonsured monk from the Middle Ages. Do you remember? You said you were in tune with the ancient Egyptians and that mummification was an art. Yet your art was more powerful, as the creature was exposed to air when you'd finished it, sometimes handled. I had not always been interested in dead things, 
but they seemed to be interested in me, even from an early age. Growing up among the wetlands of Somerset, I had plenty of opportunity to mix with the wildlife, dead or alive. It became a part of my life, a part of me. The ground was black and wet. It smelt of woeful solitude. As a child, I'd collect the bones of animals I found on the compost heap and line them up on my bedroom shelf alongside plastic toys, or poke a carcass with a stick to test if life could be reanimated by my interference. When we were nine, Rhett found a bloated badger puffed up like a balloon in the field at the back of our parents' house, so using a kitchen knife, I set about dissecting it. I wanted its coat for a hat. Imagine the badger's head sitting upon my own like a shamanic warrior. As I sliced down its belly, a movement I'd witnessed on a TV crime drama, I pierced the viscera and the putrid gases puffed out. A river of maggots escaped from the grey snake of its intestines onto the grass. Rhett was all for leaving it to rot, but undeterred, I thought if I could flay enough of it successfully, I would have my hat and parts of the badger would live on instead of decaying by the ditch. But this was a child's fantasy. I'd not even learned to spell the word taxidermy then. Of course, I'd seen stuffed animals at the museum, or peering out from the walls of old stately homes we'd visited in the school holidays. But the act of preserving was not one I'd been taught at such a tender age. So I made it up, much to my mother's disgust. And a few days later, the rotting flesh from the inside of the badger's skin putrefied and infused the house with a scent of sweet decay. I'll never forget her face as she looked at the jagged pelt, rough-edged, where my knife had cut it away from the carcass, random feathers sewn crudely to the rim. She tried to hide her horror with a look of vague disappointment. Her little girl did not play with dollies like normal little girls. Her little girl cut up dead animals and collected their parts to display as trophies. Even though all the remains were removed from the house, I still felt that badger near me. He lumbered toward me as I slept, then nosed about my room in the dark. I learned that badgers preferred the dark. They showed their true nature to me in ways you cannot imagine. They would tramp through my head, uprooting my thoughts with their powerful heads and stocky bodies. These were earth dwellers, underground burrowers. They were nocturnal and peaceful, unless provoked. My mother's disapproval did not put me off interfering with nature. Even in my dreams, I would steal the wings from birds and try to fly, or grow the lithe legs of a hare so I could race across a moonlit field. Mostly my dreams consisted of sinking into the wet black below my feet, right up to my neck, and I'd wake just before my head was covered in darkness. But always, day or night, I'd hear them, those creatures that had starved or frozen to death, or been poisoned or killed or died of natural causes. I heard them like a sort of electrical static that got louder, especially if the hunt was galloping across the fields, or if the pheasants were flushed up to the sky in a bountiful bouquet. Each creature had their own unique signature. They all seemed to know their place in the scheme of things. I longed for that certainty. That was how I became sure that when feathers were ruffled, dead did not always mean dead. January was the time you religiously took to your workshop, almost every day, with a renewed purpose, 
to create something so unusual it would be talked about in circles way past your final breath. It was your devotion to the work that drew me closer to you, the preparation spelled out with lines of jars and tools. It was scientific, medical and precise, not like my childhood efforts of wild abandon with blunt cutlery. Each of the stages you went through would lead to a final perfect representation of what once lived. I admired you, as I would admire any artist, although your medium was grotesque. It stank. You messed with nature. I think that's what got to us in the end. You were dealing with life, not death. Each specimen had to be renewed, like Jesus moulding new life into Lazarus. You used your hands to replicate the living, everlasting life. Even then, I witnessed the madness creep up on us and slip under our skin. That long month, Somerset was groaning and moaning under an oppressive grey sky and endless dark nights. After the Christmas lights had been packed away, the decorations stowed in the loft for another year among the spiders and dust, we got back into the daily pattern of our lives, a pattern I'd fallen into so effortlessly in those few months since we met. For us, it was a great month for resolution, with all those dark hours, thinking about what to do when the sun finally appeared to warm our skin once more. We were thinking about our future, planning, dreaming. I'm tired of stags, he said as we ate venison for the fourth night in a row. It was the week after New Year. We stayed at home for that too, munching our way through pretzels and marzipan-laced stolen and a freezer full of meat. My stomach felt heavy from all the rich food I'd consumed. It was just as well I had the sort of metabolism where I never seemed to put on weight, no matter how much I ate. Annoyed the hell out of you. Chunky Pepper was what they called you, wasn't it? Your childhood nickname. But I always thought we were a perfect match. You with your steady hands, me with the flighty grace of a starling. You could look at me as if seeing through my clothes, penetrating my core. I had never softened in the sights of any man before you. I usually moved too fast, letting those leering fools snap at my ankles like nasty dogs. Nothing pleased me like your strong hands on my body. Your hands, even your unkempt beard and severed finger, seemed perfect to me. You knew exactly where to touch me. Your fingers palpated my skin and smoothed back the faint lines and dimples with the pressure you had mastered through your work. You had already begun to diversify into more non-domestic animals, chinchillas, iguanas, a snow leopard that had belonged to an eccentric octogenarian, even a celebrated miracarp that had allegedly lived for over 30 years in a local fishing lake. The fisherman had affectionately named it Wonky Finn. It took pride of place in the clubhouse, gazing dry-eyed from a glass cabinet at the lake where it had once swum. I had watched you preserve it and paint the varnish on the scales to make it appear water-bound once more. But it cried. I never told you that. That cold fish cried at the injustice of being born again into a dry body instead of swimming away to the great lakes in the sky. The eyes, you said. They never quite show what was once inside. You would place the polished nuggets of glass onto the mount last of all, preferring the naked frame of each animal blind, 
until you'd finished sculpting and stitching the skin over layers of structure, blow-drying the fur or primping the feathers, sometimes fixing with hair lacquer. Welcome to my boudoir. I could hear your throaty chuckle echo around the workshop when I delivered cups of coffee. I loved your darkness. The way you clipped and snipped, slicing the fascia and sinews, while our dogs sometimes looked on with an expression of awe and fear. It smelt like the depths of a cave in your workshop, and the dense metallic odour of organic matter would infuse your clothes and hair. When we made love, I'd somehow taste the essence of the creatures you'd been handling, the quick, acrid bite of a fox, the feathery scratch of an owl, the smooth perfume of someone's beloved pet cat. At mealtimes, I watched you dissect the food on your plate, as if delaying the sensation of taste. You'd carefully chew in silence, mulling over the constituent parts, preferring your meat without seasoning, plain and rare. I like my meat to taste of meat, you told me. Once there was a man who kept goats in his backyard. He didn't name the goats. They weren't pets after all. He ate every part of them, the legs, liver, kidneys, blood, even the fat encompassing the intestines. He just clawed it off with his bony fingers and chewed it up, raw. I fantasized about us doing this. We could enact a sacrifice to the gods, drink the blood, dance naked under the moonlight. There was something honorable in rearing and dispatching your own meal. The landscape had only changed a little since my childhood. More intensive farming methods, more houses, and more sophisticated drainage continued to pump the water off the land and into the rivers, but the contours and ridges looked much the same. Our county, just a car drive from Stonehenge, was famous for being mystical Avalon. We were in the middle of the hinterland, the Somerset Levels, the moor, land of apples, land of the dead. The marshes reclaimed from the sea still haunted the place with watery whispers from withy beds, and mist rose up from the reeds like smoke from a mariner's pipe. Here we chose to live among the vernacular of widgeon and teal, the loose earth low and slaked with moisture. We lived on borrowed ground, peat shifting beneath us, as if the bodies of buried beasts wanted to reform their ancient bones from the earth itself and resurfaced to taste the air with moistened tongues. Even in the cold density of January, we sensed the shift of seasons. The flight of lapwing and starling reminded us of impermanence. Their wings were flashes of light in the grey mornings, as they rose like an idea suddenly surfacing. So, January became not so much of a drag as an exploration along an unmapped road. And where you went, I would follow an enraptured devotee of your world of grisly body parts, heads, legs, claws, beaks, feathers, scales, all catalogued and preserved, then reinvested into new imagined creatures. You inspired me to use my skills as an artist, so I started sketching out ideas for you. I had studied art, but was more accustomed to drawing portraits and bowls of fruit, the things I could study with my own eyes, not these bizarre monstrosities that bombarded me at night in my dreams, as if mislaid blueprints of evolution were exhumed after millions of years. I had daydreamed about becoming famous like Frida Kahlo, 
but mostly I ended up in jobs that didn't fulfill me. Waitressing, bartending, packing crisps in a factory. I was working at a call centre for an insurance company when we met. I never dreamt I'd find my life filled up by another person. We started with the crabbit, my original idea, a crow's head attached to a rabbit's body adorned with the bird's black wings. It now sits on our mantelpiece as a reminder of those early, naive days. I felt it watch us, trying to make sense of its own identity. Am I crow or am I rabbit? Its confusion was obvious to me, as if fur and feather, claw and paw, were never meant to be conjoined. To the south of our house, your workshop nestled at the bottom of the garden. The soft glow of an electric bulb denoted your presence, a beacon, but also a no-entry sign for any unwelcome interference. The lit-up interior said to me, I'm working in my world among my things. Give me space. I understood your need for solitude in your cave-like retreat, a place away from our shared home. It was yours alone, not ours. What I'm trying to say is, I know how you worked. Having worked in lively places where people talked all day, every day, I found this quiet world with you a dreamy paradise. We both were seeking solitude, after all the layers of affection were stripped back, much like the way you peeled back an animal's skin with precision, flaying the tough sinews and fascia with sharp tools, turning it inside out, revealing exposing it and ultimately becoming intimate with its form. Its unique essence was mastered by your hands. This couldn't be shared. It was personal. That is why I thought you'd understand my own needs. My solitude was not sought in the cool confines of a workshop, but in the expanse of another place, the dark recesses of my imagination. I suggested a website for your business, but you looked at me as if I were suggesting you sell your soul to the devil. That seemed unnatural to you. Too removed, perhaps. Who would see it? You asked. Everyone. Everyone who knows me? Yes. Well, everyone who uses the internet and searches for you, or for taxidermy. What, strangers too? Yes, everyone. What's the point of, say, people in China seeing it? The point is... But by this stage in our discussion, you could probably sense my exasperation. It's what people do. It's how people communicate. Well, I don't. No, I know. So we left it at that, just an understanding that there was no point in persuading you of its efficacy, especially as I was not even convincing myself. Selfishly, I wanted to protect you from the rest of the world and all its lies. Deceit snarled up in layers of data, clogging up pages and pages of computer screens. Forever there, eternal but dirtied, unverified and open to abuse. Perhaps the internet was a form of afterlife, preserved in a graveyard of dumped information. Perhaps you were right. Perhaps I was my own worst enemy. Besides, if you had spent less time working on those creatures... You would perhaps have discovered that my world was coming undone. I felt turned inside out, like the skin of a dead rabbit, waiting to be filled, stuffed fresh and preserved, put on display and admired. How lifelike! Don't the eyes follow you about the room? 
Those that are new to the craft always look at the glass eyes first, just to check that the specimen is really dead, or maybe to see if any remaining life clings on. What I'm trying to tell you is that January was about the time when I found him. He seemed to appear at the top of all the search engines when I typed in, Best Taxidermist in the World. Felix de Souza, a name that would become etched on our psyches, a name that signified doom. But being the petulant Scarlet that I was, how could I resist? And what Scarlet wanted, Scarlet got. From that moment, I became consumed by his whereabouts, thinking that you too could achieve such international acclaim. His youth was an asset, but no match for your experience. Knowing he existed gnawed away at my brain, like one of those parasites that eats you from the inside. Once a year in Somerset, a custom called wassailing is carried out to encourage a bountiful apple harvest for the coming season. A gun is fired to scare away malevolent spirits, and a wassail queen soaks bread and cider as an offering to the apple gods and goddesses. I knew about it before I met you, of course, but many didn't if they were not from the rural areas. This was my first wassailing ceremony. We were wrapped up in thick coats and woolen scarves. In fact, the only piece of skin showing was a strip across my eyes, below my hat, and above my scarf-covered mouth. You held my hands encased in padded mittens. I felt upholstered together and sweaty underneath all my layers, waiting by the door for you to fetch your gun. But I knew it would be cold in the apple orchard at Penny's place. At least it wasn't raining that night. Do we really have to go? You knew Penny made me feel uncomfortable, as if she had some kind of ownership of you. I'm the one firing the gun this year. Come on, you'll enjoy it once you get there. There's cider and a hog roast. You tried to tickle me under my arms, but I had so many layers of clothes, it just felt like mild pummeling. I couldn't believe how many people were there. It was a beautiful night. The clouds had been blown away, and a cold serenity seemed to open up the sky like a velvet sheet dusted with glitter. My neck hurt from looking at the stars, searching for a shooting one. I was about to ask you if you'd ever wished upon a star, but we were interrupted. Henry, darling. Wafts of sickly perfume met my nostrils before she appeared, pushing through a group of people exhaling clouds over plastic cups of mulled cider. Her face was painted with ivy leaves that spiralled up her cheeks to the corners of her eyes and down her neck, as if a reptile were trying to gain access to her wrinkled cleavage. Penny. You nodded a clipped greeting and stood by my side to face her. This reassured me to know where your loyalties lay. I knew she was itching to touch you as she edged closer. Her sagging bosom heaved over the neck of her dress, as if something in her chest were trying to break free. Can I have a word about the proceedings? She whispered like it was some kind of conspiracy between you two. You were only to play a small part, firing your gun into the air. I had watched you replace the lead shot with corn for safety, an old trick of yours you'd learned from your father. It will still knock you down, you told me sternly. But you'd survive. I had no doubt you would not hesitate to use it for protection. A small shudder ran through my bones. The wassailing ceremony began, and Penny, crowned with a wreath of dark green leaves, 
led the parade to one of the apple trees in her orchard that had been decorated in twinkly, solar-powered lights. She looked severely underdressed for the weather, but insisted on wearing a long silk gown and a velvet cape. Then, as self-appointed wassail queen, she dipped a hunk of toast into a jug of mulled cider, placed it carefully on one of the branches, and suggestively sucked her fingers while looking at you. I felt like a voyeur. She's a bit serious, isn't she? I whispered to you when she poured the rest of the cider around the base of the tree. You shushed me, and I felt a pang of jealousy. I wondered if you had, in the past, shared more with her than a cup of cider in a freezing cold field. I took a swig and let the warm, spiced liquid sink down to my stomach. It shouldn't have mattered to me, but she'd known you for longer than I had. It wasn't even that. You seemed to have this common acceptance of each other. Perhaps you loved her. Penny signalled to you with a nod, and you fired your gun to the sky to ward off the evil spirits. Even though I was expecting it to be loud, the shot still made me jump. I saw her snigger and scowled in her direction, but she was too busy rousing the crowd into a wassail song. Old apple tree, we wassail thee, and hoping thou will bear, for the Lord doth know where we shall be, till apples come another year. For to bear well and to bloom well, so merry let us be. Let every man take off his hat and shout to the old apple tree, old apple tree, we wassail thee, and hoping thou will bear hatfuls, capfuls, three bushel bagfuls, and a little heap under the stairs. You nuzzled your beard into my neck and whispered, Time for bed, Miss Scarlet. Penny may have had you wrapped round her little finger, but I had you every night. As I looked again toward the branches of the trees and up above to the big indigo sky, I felt your heat reach me beneath my clothes and the effects of the cider creeping up my legs. How did I get so drunk? The day after that night, I felt invigorated. No hangover, surprisingly. We'd probably burnt it off in bed. We had stripped off and launched naked under the covers as soon as we arrived home. The patchwork of warmth from your hot hands on my cold skin and your tongue still sticky with cider made me sink into a weighty sleep. In my dreams, you were chasing me round and round an apple tree, and Penny was laughing, hands on her hips, taunting me with a bust that was more fitting on a twenty-year-old. We were all naked. The crabbit was hopping and flapping its wings beneath the tree, and Felix was spraying warm cider from a champagne magnum over my head. I woke to find you kneeling upright on the bed beside my face, pumping a heavy erection. As I refocused my eyes, a globule landed on my cheek. I didn't want to wake you. You were out of breath from your exertions and sat back on your haunches, gazing at me. The covers were pulled down below my waist and my naked body felt chilled. I sleepily reached for my face, the stickiness already sliding down toward the pillow. Here, let me. You wiped a tissue across my cheek, tossed it to the floor, then pushed your tongue into my mouth. As you slid down next to me, I could still feel your dampness fading against my thigh. You leaned over to kiss me again, but I felt a pang of anger. Even though we had shared every inch of ourselves the night before, 
This seemed like an intrusion into my dreams, an infiltration of my mind. I turned my head away, trying to catch glimpses of Felix from my dream, but you continued to nibble at my air. You looked so sexy, so still. The crabbit hopping and flapping. I was sleeping. Felix, perfect in every way, splashing champagne over me. Did you enjoy it last night? You continued kissing my neck, my weakness, sending shivers through me. My first was sail, I said. A wassail virgin. Hatfuls, capfuls, three bushel bags full. My fixation on others was just my way of proving how much I loved you. I hope you believe me. But the noises in my head grew louder. The crabbit was angry. Am I crow or am I rabbit? It squawked and squealed with all its might. I thought my head might explode. When you went down to your workshop, I fetched my laptop and clicked straight onto the internet. Felix D'Souza. His website said he had trained as a sculptor at the Royal Academy before providing blue-chip art to galleries and private collectors. It certainly looked expensive. The magnificent coiled silkiness of a boa constrictor with wings mounted on a granite plinth, its mouth wide in attack, some sort of rodent with chicken's feet and a snake as a tail. As I flicked through his portfolio, I felt a surge of jealousy. I wanted you to show off your work like that. Whenever I looked at your creations, I felt as if they were still alive, or an essence of them had been carried through the veil of death and lived on. Your crabbit signified such an important breakthrough. It really worked. But Felix's sight showed even more bizarre combinations. He seemed to mix up wild and domestic species to create almost alien-looking creatures. I know it went against all your training, but I also knew you could do it. We all do things we don't want to, and I thought participating in an exhibition would be perfect in the spring, something to work toward with healthy competition. That was why I suggested it to you, partly because I thought you deserved it, partly because I thought it would be a way to expunge my stupid fascination with Felix by meeting him in the flesh and setting him against you, as if comparison would cure me of my obsession with things that weren't mine to possess. Should I have stopped meddling and accepted things as they were, nothing and nobody would ever come between us. I'm not sure about this. We were sipping wine and admiring the crabbit on the mantelpiece. The crow's dark head and wings were fixed onto the white rabbit. Alice in Wonderland gone wrong, I said. No, it's not the combination. More that it doesn't feel right. How do you mean? When I stuff a whole creature, I mean, without mixing it with another species, it seems pure somehow. These hybrids seem unnatural. But you said yourself the market is dwindling. It's all highbrow conceptual stuff nowadays. I sipped some wine. I've entered you into a show. What do you mean? The spring show. I've entered you as an exhibitor. There's plenty of time to build your portfolio. What show? What portfolio? I couldn't tell you then that I knew Felix was a part of it. But at the time, I thought it would be good for you, for us. I knew it would have to be your idea, and you would distance yourself from me while you considered it. I was surprised when you agreed with minimal fuss. 
I thought you complied to indulge me, and it pleased me indeed. We set about devising a strategy. Every morning we would wake, make love, then walk the dogs together before breakfast. Sometimes we would make love mid-morning, if you were feeling aroused by the ideas we talked about. It seemed to be a routine we fell into rather easily. I drew up a spreadsheet with timescales and sources for specimens. My sketches took up so much time that I felt the creatures swim inside my head. Some I'd never heard of before, but excitement ran through me at the prospect of you experimenting. Pangolin, Wakari, Capybara, the searches for legal imports and laws around the protection of species, even extinct animals needed certification, and the postage seemed extortionate. Nevertheless, we were not deterred. You had ways of acquiring the animals. I became your assistant as well as your lover. I couldn't help going back to what you said about the creatures not being pure once you had disassembled, then stitched them together as something new. You felt it too, didn't you? Christmas Day. Today. Early morning. Our home has been trimmed up. Red and gold tinsel drape the picture frames and curtain rails. Paper chains are tacked to the ceiling beams, and a new batch of halogen lights are set to slow fade and flicker, so they reflect on the window and make me think of musical notes ascending and descending on a scale. We have a real tree this year, rather than the synthetic one that you keep boxed up in the loft. This glorious tree has been installed in the lounge, not too close to the log fire, so it has space to breathe and retain its needles. It's a Nordman fir, bushy and voluptuous, as if Narnia has arrived in our home. At any minute, a horny Mr. Tumnus will appear, scarf adjusted at a jaunty angle tickling his bare chest, with a couple of beavers jostling in his wake. You sort of remind me of a manlier Mr. Tumnus, or maybe I'm confusing him with a centaur. Yes, you're more of a centaur, strong legs like a horse, tough muscular back, and proper chest hair I can burrow into with my long, cold fingers. The pine needles look blue-rinsed and shimmer a hue so ancient that I want to cry with joy. You've lit a scented candle, hints of cinnamon and cranberry mixing with the other scents. Its flame casts shapes on the wall, like the probing tongues of lizards. The smell reminds me of the Christmas cake my mother used to set on the table, steeped in brandy, fruit packed tight like glistening beads, loaded with promise. I'm drawn to the flicker of the candle. I'm drawn to the top of the tree. I start at the top and work my way down the branches. A star, five-pointed and silver, twinkles and reminds me of the eyes set in the heads of your stuffed creatures. It is only reflection. There is nothing genuine about it, artificial and fraudulent. But I am enthralled by its status, all the way up there, elevated on high. Where is the angel? Did we not have an angel among our decorations? One of those hermaphroditic, symmetrical beauties, with blonde hair and spread wings and arms, but no feet. Angels don't need to walk when they have the gift of flight. To fly, I need only to lift my thoughts higher than that tree. I lift my mind, and my body seems to follow. There is freedom when I place my will above the confines of my form. By the way, 
Angels are not sweet, trumpet-blowing lovelies like the ones on Christmas cards. No, they breathe fire, spit earth, cast demons from the shadowy pits of valleys and stagnant lagoons. Listen to me talking of angels like I'm some authority. There are no angels here. It's early in the morning. You are clattering around in the kitchen, metal banging against the ceramic top of the cooker, utensils rattling as you begin to prepare the Christmas feast. I have always loved your way of cooking, impulsive yet diligent. A tadakan seems a bit extravagant for just the two of us, but I half expect Rhett to appear at the door, empty-handed as an urchin. Most years he tends to make his way back to me, as if by being twins we have some natural homing device fitted to each other. Flesh and blood belong together at Christmas time. Christmas wouldn't be right without traditions and routines. Every family has them. Some of ours have merged and evolved, like what food to eat and when. Others are devised or reinvented, like the order in which we open gifts and the patterns of the day. For one day of the year, it's as if everyone else's home has become an enigma. Unless you have the code to enter their world, you'll be lost in translation. I'd imagine most people expect us to be quite eccentric on Christmas Day. They may be right this year. Bread sauce, cranberry sauce, stuffing, ha, gravy, mustard. All these delicious liquid accompaniments to what is only one meal of the year. But it is a meal charged with expectation. That's probably why Rhett always turns up. He knows he'll get fed. And the sprouts will take centre stage, glistening like green bullets in butter and sprinkled with tiny cubes of crisp pancetta. Christmas without a momentous meal is like me without you. Unthinkable. So, this is our second Christmas together on the Somerset levels. Preparation is key to a perfect day, you always say. Tree, tick. Decorations, tick. Food, tick. Booze, tick. Christmas music playing in the background, tick. And enough logs to see us through if this deep freeze doesn't thaw like the Christmas I spent in Poland with my family as a child. The thickest drift of snow in decades, great white waves wedged up against the walls of the house, as if a truck had tipped it there on purpose. We were holed up for over a month before it melted. We couldn't even open the front door, so Rhett and I ended up climbing out the upstairs window instead and slid down the roof. Mother and father together and in love. Our family grew close, laughter and mealtimes shared in the big house my father had rented for work. That year really did feel like Narnia. We made up stories holding a flashlight under the duvet like a giant billowing tent, nibbled biscuits and pretzels. We were even allowed to sip hot vodka. No pretzels this year, and no red, yet. I soon forgot the snow when I returned to England, let the memory melt into grey sludge and trickle away down the train. There were other years in the UK when I felt the similar effects of that childhood snow. It was fleeting. Cars soon returned to the once-blocked roads, and the momentary inconvenience of a bit of bad weather was shoved to the back of everyone's minds. For us children, it was a novelty. I felt sorry for the animals during those harsh winter months, some bound in hibernation, burning their body fat like oil lamps. Those winsome dormice, tucked up in burrows, 
and even the stinky, robust badgers having a hard time of it. I can feel their pain more than ever now. Each squeak becomes a roar to me. Their cries prick me like sharp needles. It's the damp I worry about this Christmas. After all the rain this year, we may as well have grown webbed feet and gills, evolved into creatures that swim, amphibie sapiens. You'd like that, wouldn't you? A new species to tinker with. Mermaids and mermen inhabiting the Somerset levels. I am tingling, thinking about your hands at work. Do you remember how it all began in January? You were really fired up then. I like to think I still ignite your passion. I do, don't I? Henry Royston Pepper. How could I not love you with a name like that? My spicy peppercorn. You are my true love, my confidant, my saviour, and all those clichés we toss about when our hearts get stolen. So here we are at home, alone, on Christmas Day, our favourite day of the whole year. February The weather girl, in a tight-fitting blue vest, flourished a bare arm toward the map of the British Isles. I didn't normally watch television in the mornings, but I felt grotty, so I was lounging about after breakfast before you went off to your workshop. Cartoon clouds and perfectly spaced diagonal droplets of rain swept across the screen in regimental fashion as the time fast-forwarded across the bottom to forecast the gloomy day ahead. Most of the weekend would be under a low front. Squally showers and a brisk wind from the west, turning northwesterly, followed by gales overnight. Gone with the wind, Miss Scarlet. You winked at me, kissed the top of my head, then let the door slam behind you. I flinched. The gales made me jittery. You calling me Miss Scarlet reminded me of Rhett. My name was a source of ridicule for most of my childhood. The fact that my parents named my twin Rhett made it all the more embarrassing. It was Mother who had latched on to Scarlet O'Hara as the brave, resourceful woman, and Rhett Butler, the rebellious rogue. She thrived on longing an old-fashioned romantic at heart. She used every opportunity to fuse us together, like those fancy dress parades she insisted we join, or the matching cardigans she knitted for us. I was used to being dressed up like a mannequin. I'm sure you could tell. My parents were immortalized by the fact that they were dead, and the very few memories I had were kept tightly encased in a part of my mind reserved for family access only. Although you are family to me, you know what I mean, it's never simple, is it? Do we decide where we belong, or is it decided for us? The windy weather tied me in knots. One moment a calm lull like an exhalation, then a door slamming hard like a snapped jaw. Relentless, buffeting madness. The dogs felt it. Wind up their arse, you would say, as they deftly slinked about the yard, tails up, darting about, then crouching down, as if they could stalk the invisible currents of air. You had decided to work all weekend, which suited me. My head was thumping. I was worried about Rhett. We were connected, even when apart, a shared ancestry and subconscious connection. No matter how far he travelled geographically, we were always close. We were together from the very beginning, do you understand? Perhaps you don't. You never had brothers or sisters. 
Even the air pressure seemed to affect me, especially when it rose and fell so frequently, as if I were being squashed between two sheets of metal. Later in the day, I retreated to have a lie down, like a bird taking shelter from the storm. The sound of pellets on a tin roof woke me. It sounded rhythmic, though, like someone urgently knocking at the door. If I ignored it, I thought, I could block it out, or it would eventually cease. But it was knocking. Sharp raps on our front door. Ours was not a house that was en route to anywhere except the marshes and the fields. Any visitors had to make a determined effort to find us. The knocking continued, so I threw on my old sloppy cardigan over my pyjamas, slipped my feet into my boot slippers, and ventured downstairs, half hoping whoever it was would have given up and gone to find you in the workshop by the time I opened the door. He's dead, Penny stood on the doorstep, arms wrapped about her cashmere coat, and the wind fighting against the pins in her hair. Even in her disheveled state, she had an air of old-school glamour. I focused on her through a haze of headache. The pulsing returned to my temples. She continued to speak as she pushed her way past me and stepped over the threshold, fingering her windswept mop of blonde hair as if it were candy floss. Henry not at home, she asked, looking down her nose at my pyjama bottoms, which were frayed and torn at the hems. I caught the door just before it was about to slam again and shut it tight against the wind. Penny was pacing around the kitchen, eyes darting about for an answer to her own question. She didn't want me, she wanted you. I stood my ground, waiting for an explanation, feeling my hackles raise as she slid her fingers across the work surface and inspected for dirt. Henry's working, I told her. Darling, I've not slept a wink. What's happened, Penny? I told you, he's dead. Who? He's in the car. I put him in the deep freeze overnight. I hope I've done the right thing. The deep freeze? Congenital heart defect, she continued by way of explanation. Her cool, matter-of-fact manner replaced the mock grief offered on the doorstep. Really? I couldn't believe she was talking so freely about putting someone in the deep freeze. Yes, none of the others ever had anything like that. They always seemed so fit. I knew she'd had a few partners in her time, groomed, compliant types, but the way she was speaking disturbed me. I could not imagine how she even lifted his body. Did she cut him up? My head thumped loudly in my ears. Kirino and Virgil are pining, she was babbling now. I've got to keep their spirits up. We've got three dog shows coming up. Poor little pumpkins. Parker was running around bright as day last week. Then it all became clear. Parker? Yes, darling, Parker, of course. He was my favourite, although we shouldn't really have favourites. He was my prize-winning boy. She sniffed loudly and dabbed at her nose with a lace-edged cotton handkerchief. It had an embroidered letter P in red cotton at its corner. Parker, Penny, Pepper. Oh, I said. Parker the Poodle. Of course, dear. He's always been a poodle. Now, where is Henry? She seemed to snap out of her grief and peered behind me, as if I might be concealing you in the room somewhere. That was the weekend before Valentine's Day. I know this because you said you'd work all that weekend and we'd spend the next together. 
no work, just us together. I should have known it was the start of something complicated. Penny had been breeding poodles for years, and of course Parker wasn't the first to die, but she'd never had any of them immortalized through taxidermy before. Perhaps what she really wanted was attention, for you to comfort her with your strong arms wrapped around her. But I sure as hell wouldn't disturb your work for her, just turning up like that in a flashy convertible, wanting you to drop everything for her. It made me livid. Her thin smile was plastered with a shade of lipstick I can only describe as neon tangerine. It matched her nails and that thin line of flesh inside her lower eyelids. You must have had some kind of forged trust with her for her to turn up with her beloved prize-winning poodle, expecting to jump to the front of the taxidermy queue. What kind of hold did she have over you? Why had I even bothered to get out of bed? You must have heard her arrive too. It was as if you wanted me to answer the door to her, as if you wanted to prove you had nothing to hide from me by letting her barge into our sanctuary unannounced. She never wanted to speak with me, normally. That day was no different. I was but a signpost to your whereabouts. I told her where to find you, and she scurried out, leaving me to catch the door again before it slammed. From the window, I watched her retrieve Parker from the boot of her car, a not-quite-frozen package, wrapped in what looked like a silk bedsheet. That was when I saw you come up the path from your workshop and walk up to her. She tossed her head back, in that way she does when she's flirting, handed you her dead dog, and offered you her cheek. It looked like she was passing a child from her arms to yours. Was it instinct or habit that made you linger as you kissed her? You must have known I could see you both whispering to each other as the trees whipped their bare branches above you. I took another two pills and went back to bed. The next week, I felt cleansed. The weather had calmed and the sun was shining. Inside, behind glass, I could close my eyes and pretend I was sunbathing on a beach. Outside, the winter still had its grip upon the landscape, and the air was crisp and fresh. You took my hand and led me down the path toward your workshop, where you'd spent most of the morning. The hedgerow rustled with dead leaves embraced in its skeletal frame, but new life was beginning to shoot through the dark layers of bramble, and a blackbird chattered noisily across the grass. I breathed deeply, as if to distill the afternoon breeze into colours that I could draw upon when the darkness descended. Don't peek or you'll ruin it, you whispered, while guiding me through the doorway. I knew the route, even with my eyes shut, but you held my shoulders from behind as if I might stumble, your hands tightly gripping me. The smell of your domain hit my senses, the usual scent of animal skins and the sticky resinous glue that lingered like molasses in the air. It was a musky smell, an afterward to real life, which seemed to settle like a well-read elegy on the benches and floor. It was like breathing in fragments of your imagination. You closed the door so the cool air did not intrude, and we were enclosed in your private space. Happy Valentine's Day, you boomed, and I took this as your cue for me to open my eyes. There before me on your bench, I saw the bowed heads of two stuffed swans nudging together in perfect symmetry, like one of those hearts drawn as a doodle, the perfect gift for Valentine's Day.
white, serene, austere. I tried to take in what my mind could not comprehend. There were swan heads and necks, but not swan bodies. The heads and necks of two swans rose up from one newly imagined round globe of a body. As my eyes refocused, I could see that they were not just swans, but swans with fur. Positioned among the soft feathers of the globe was a small heart-shaped swatch of white fur. I could tell you wanted to experiment with the texture. Swans combined with a poodle, not just any old poodle. You had used part of Lady Penelope's prize-winning pooch. A quick stitch job and a remnant of Parker's coat had been mounted onto what looked like a perfect feathered sphere. Personally, I think you could have used Parker's body, but I understood she was waiting for him to be returned complete. It just looked a little, well, crude, but I never would have told you that then. Something lurched inside me. You had taken something precious from her and given it to me. That was love, wasn't it? How did you dream this one up? I gently ran my fingers over the silky, orb-shaped body beneath the swan's curved necks as you stood there, a grin lighting your face as you held it out like a trophy to be awarded. The texture of Parker's fur in a heart shape was ovine. It jarred on my senses, contrasting with the sleekness of the swan's feathers. It was a beast of one color but two origins. The masculine fires of fur had been fixed onto the bulbous ball, the size of a football, set against the feminine gloss of swan's necks rising above it. It had no legs. Long-necked and legless, it looked top-heavy, a white ball with only the red of the bird's beaks offering an airy kiss to one another. Valentine's Day offered more than just roses or chocolates or heart-shaped soft toys with cutesy smiles. My true love, you, only you, would surprise me with a swoodle. Feathers and fur belong on a catwalk. They say, look at me, I'm gorgeous. But white feathers and white fur, really? I was speechless. My card to you and homemade rose chocolate hearts were boring in comparison to this gift. It was safe to say no one had ever given me real swans as a gift before, especially stuffed ones. Is it legal? Scarlet, spoil the mood, won't you? Sorry, I just thought swans were, well, you know, protected. It's illegal to kill them, but I didn't kill them. You set the swoodle carefully down on your workbench and stood back to admire your creation. What, you happened to find two dead ones? They must have flown into the power lines, it happens. I'm fairly sure they didn't suffer, and they are a pair, so just think of them having died together like Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet did not fly into overhead power cables. Do you like it, though? Say you love it, Scarlet. You suddenly grabbed me round my waist and squeezed. Thank you, Peppercorn. How could I not love something created by your masterful hands? Yet it unnerved me in close proximity. Two swans combined with a poodle. In life, these species would not mix. I could tell the swoodle was uncertain about its place in this world, and the feeling was reciprocated. I did not want you to think me ungrateful, so I smothered you with kisses. I know Lady P expected Parker back in one piece, after all. 
God knows what she'd think of you if she knew you'd stolen his fur and made it into a love token for me. I reached toward the swoodle, but you leapt forward to grab my hand, as if I were an infant reaching for fire. Careful, Scarlet. It's a bit unbalanced. How do you mean? I haven't decided how to make it freestanding. I stopped myself from laughing. You would think I was laughing at you. I would never laugh at you. You put so much thought into it and would be affronted if I showed nothing but respect. And besides, it was all for me. I didn't have time to attach the wings. You held one up to show me the expanse, stretching it full breadth as if it could soar to the heavens on its own. They are magnificent. I took it stroking with the back of my hand, realizing I'd never touched a swan's wing before. I'd only touched a single feather. The swans were a common sight, and yet they remained elusive and regal in their stark contrast to the peat-packed land where they nested. The feathers were magical, and I had made some into quills, dipped their sharpened shaft into indigo ink, and watched the hollow retain the dark liquid. I scratched archaic letters onto a card, made up symbols, and mimicked the movement of the birds with the nib. But even the large feathers were scarce compared to how many swans actually populated the marshes. Imagine having wings, I said. You clasped me about my waist and lifted me effortlessly as if I were a child. You were always sweeping me off my feet one way or another. You set me down. I felt breathless, but exhilarated by your strength. I must be the only woman alive to own a swoodle. With my arms looped around your neck, still clinging to the swan's wing as if it were my own, I could feel the warmth of your body. Yet I felt a chill run up and down my spine. You had worked so hard that week, and also completed your taxidermy of Parker. He looked so lifelike, and the missing fur was negligible. Penny said she'd collect him as soon as you told her he was ready. Until then, he was positioned silently in the corner of your workshop. The shelves were filled with jars of objects, eyes, feathers, driftwood and moss, as if you were a witch doctor, ready to dispense cures to the sick. Pebbles and fossils from the beach were dotted around the edge, as if the tide had washed up and left them like flotsam. I pulled a mound of wood wool from a bulging sack and inhaled its herbal fragrance. Various shapes of wire were hanging from the ceiling, some shaped like limbs of animals, some shaped like heads. Solid mounts of deer heads positioned facing left and right were stacked up against one wall. You kept your brushes in jars and your tools hung by nails. Piles of newspapers and textbooks of your craft were scattered on the remaining surfaces. Sketches of animals were pinned up haphazardly. Cans of toxic spray with skull and crossbones labels. Bottles and plastic tubs were lined up. Nearly all the space was used. I was amazed at how you could create anything from so much chaos. I caught a glimpse of something behind the clutter on the shelf, a glass jar filled with liquid and something floating inside. Beside it, a label with my name written clearly in your handwriting. I turned to find you watching me. I smiled at you and held out my hand so you could kiss my palm, a gesture I'd come to expect as if I could collect and carry your kisses. Will you do something for me, Scarlet? 
you licked at the corners of your moustache and took both my hands in yours. Anything, I replied without hesitation, and as I looked into your eyes and promised, a pact was made with that look, the purest spell of all, intent combined with sincerity. A little part of me slipped away. Will you stay with me? Ever after, I mean. Will you be my soulmate for all eternity? Are you proposing to me, Mr. Pepper? You didn't get down on one knee, but looked deadly serious. Your vulnerability was intoxicating. It made you seem more animal than human. More than a proposal. I'm not talking till death us do part. I'm talking eternity. Love after death. That was the biggest ask of anyone, but I'd already decided. You didn't even need to ask. Love transcends all, doesn't it? Even death. You drew me toward you and planted your mouth upon mine with such force it was suffocating at first. I kissed you back with more passion. Then our breaths grew fast and urgent as you reached beneath my skirt, pushing your fingers inside me while I grappled with the belt on your trousers. I gripped your workshop bench where the swoodle was balanced precariously, its swan's heads rocking together in rhythm with your thrusts, as if nodding encouragement to your proposal. I later found out that swans have a violent mythology. Zeus and Leda, a woman and a swan, how terrific. Something extraordinary and far more erotic than a man and woman. I imagined his feathery wings beating around her fleshy body. All that phantasmagorical weirdness thrusting into the minds of great artists, encouraging them for millennia to replicate such myths through paintings and sculpture. And taxidermy, perhaps. We seek what is familiar, don't we? But we cannot resist that which is not. The intrigue, the mystery, the sheer horror of the unusual. The great swan with its terrible look. Yet we balk from it, shy away and titter, ridicule and fear it. More often than not, we kill it. Those swans you used, positioned in the shape of a heart, were an omen. And Parker the Poodle never asked to be paired with such brutal mythology. It was only Penny's dog, after all, who happened to die at the right time, in the right place. Or the wrong time, in the wrong place. I thought I heard a hiss and a growl as I left the workshop, or it could have been the door hinge, or our dogs grumbling for their dinner. I didn't think much of it at the time, because I was so wrapped up in you. There were few people in this world I would trust with my life, but you were one of them. I'm not saying that in a needy way, more of a statement of truth for posterity. You had a way of holding the space around me with such delicacy, unabashed and confident. We would never be afraid of silence. Being present with one another was conversation enough, a veritable feast flavoured by your rough edges and my sharp quirks. Creatures come alive if they are noticed. Is it not love that fuels the spirit? When we name something, we create it, allow it to materialise, I often wondered if we would have met at another place and time, had we not met how we did. It seemed fated, but don't most lovers say it was fate that brought them together? Love at first sight is overrated and condescending. There is no love without connection, 
And how can you connect to someone so instantly, like a battery clicking into a plastic casement? No matter how much technology we use, plugging up our orifices with wires and noise, data repetitively infiltrating our senses through the jittering pads of our opposable thumbs, tap, tap, tap. The truth is, we have souls. We met by the edge, you and I. I remember it like this because you always said the sea was the last great unknown and undiscovered part of our world. That roguish day I was searching for meaning by the shore, and you were searching for items that could serve as a backdrop to your taxidermy mounds. The beach was bleak and littered with spoils from the tide's regurgitated breakfast. A mutated plastic bottle top fused with a shell, a red Connect Four token glaring like a spilled drop of blood on the rocks, and polished blue and green glass sieved clean like jewels among the grit. Twigs and branches were tangled up with seaweed and driftwood on the pale pebbles. The licked stone-smooth texture rolled onto the rocks like alien limbs spewed up from another planet. What is it about driftwood that evokes romance? It was little wonder I was drawn to you. Transformer of dead things, creator of curiosities, my beautiful, big-boned taxidermist extraordinaire. That day could not have been coincidence. Even in my darkest hours, when my faith was seemingly whittled away, I still believed in fate. Was it at this time, when my headaches began to gnaw so frequently, that others' thoughts infiltrated my own? Or was it that I was weakened by the headaches, less able to control the endless chattering noise that seemed to come from being around other restless souls. You carried a huge tub of fossils, as if you were merely carrying an empty cup. Mainly ammonites, those curly whirlpools of delight exhibited Fibonacci sequence on slabs of slate, like an old-fashioned teacher's board. The ambitious patterns seemed to have humility, even in extinction, but what do we ever learn? We are absorbed by the past, drowned by sentimentalism, yet somehow we still aspire to timeless values like faith, hope, love. Of course we do, but to prove what? That we are above it all, that we are human, entitled to act like God. As you can tell, I have been mulling this over for some time now. I was intrigued by a mass on the shoreline, so moved closer. We first met, looking down at a large creature washed up by the tide. There were smatterings of dark fur over a decaying and deformed animal, the size of a small horse. An exposed, elongated skull grinned to show oddly shaped teeth. What is it? I asked you. Dead, you said. That is when I looked up and saw you gazing, not at the creature, but at my face. I'm Henry. You offered your hand and I noticed one shortened finger as I reached to shake it, a hand scarred and strong. Scarlet, I smiled. Scarlet, that's my favorite name. I felt the warmth from your hand on mine, so when you released your grip, I plunged it into my pocket to retain the heat. You towered over me. The wind had started to thrash the waves onto the pebbles and roll them back and forth like a hypnotic lullaby. Suddenly, Thoughts of my father surfaced like flashes of sunlight on the waves, unreachable and fleeting. He was not a big man like you, but he was tall and made me feel protected. 
I yearned for that void inside myself to be filled with a man, a solid, vital being surging with life, protector, fighter, creator. And there you were. I wanted to become something else even then, to be noticed, to be transformed by a higher will. There was an ocean inside both of us, huge and helpless. So was it any wonder we sought solace in one another? I remember you commenting that it was possible nowadays to find almost anything on a beach. Did you find me? Or did I find you? Or perhaps we both followed some innate homing device? But back then, I would never have believed that I could feel a connection that intense to anyone but Rhett. I don't know why I didn't tell you at first that my brother was my twin. You never seemed that interested in my family. Rhett and I had an unspoken bond, the kind you find with twins, a connection that excludes anyone else, like a well-guarded secret we kept from anyone else, even from you. When we were children, we would roll about together and pretend we were conjoined, wrapping ourselves in a sheet so our bodies were tightly pressed together and breathless. Sometimes I felt a burning inside me to reach Rhett. He was never far from my thoughts. On Valentine's Day, the day you presented me with the swoodle, I decided that I needed to speak with my brother in person. That was easier said than done, seeing as I didn't know where he was in the world half the time. I tried his mobile, but it just kept ringing. There was no answering service. I checked on Facebook, but he'd not posted anything since last July when he was travelling around Spain. I had sent him an email and hoped he would answer it. I even tried some telepathy, the way us twins do, sat in front of the mirror and concentrated really hard, visualised him calling me. But whenever I opened my mind, I seemed to tap into some other frequency where spirits seemed to reside. They wanted me to notice them, to contact them instead of Rhett. The voices emerged as a soft buzzing at first, then a low thrum, like the sound you get in theatres, Hundreds of people chattering and whispering before the start of a performance. Then the sounds seemed to infiltrate my head. Not actual words, but background noise. And the only way to get rid of them was to keep my body moving, to get outside and away from all the interference. I took the dogs out onto the moor. It was cold but bright, and I needed the fresh air. As I moved... The voices and sounds seemed to swarm behind me like angry hornets. I walked faster and faster and nearly broke into a run, a hurried pace between walking and jogging. The wintry wind was making my eyes water. The dogs were ahead of me on the pathway, and I knew it would be dark soon. I stumbled a little on the ground, which was quite ridged and rocky, uneven in patches. Then out of nowhere, a buzzard swooped so low I felt its wings brush my head. It made me shriek out in surprise. I'd never heard of a buzzard doing this to a human. Gulls, I would expect to take their chances with a human in broad daylight, especially if there was food. But buzzards were wild. They kept apart from man on the periphery of civilization, in fields and woods. Had it simply flown off, I would have thought it was an error of judgment, that it had mistaken my woolly hat for a rabbit or even a newborn lamb. But it did it again, swooping low with talons outstretched in a position of attack. 
I stooped low and raised my arms above my head to ward it off. It startled me so much that I wondered if it was trying somehow to communicate with me to get my attention. With its final brush of feathers against my cheek and outstretched arm, I realized in my panic that the voices in my head had stopped abruptly. The animal sounds that were following me had ceased. The dogs came crashing back through the undergrowth, panting hot steam into the darkening February chill, tongues lolling and tails moving at speed. I kept them close by me, and we headed back toward home. When I was nearly back to our house, I saw a field full of swans, too many to count, but I estimated well over forty, all sitting or wading across the sodden ground on their wide black feet. Some regally dipped their heads to feed. Others rested with necks curved toward their backs, beaks burrowed in their feathers. I thought of the swoodle and had images of you bearing down on me in your workshop, the swan's heads butting together. What you'd said about us being together for eternity made me walk faster to tell you what had just happened. You would have an explanation. Then my phone rang. I didn't normally answer calls when the number was withheld, but I was yearning for human contact. Scarlet, who's this? The line was scratchy and sounded distant. It's me, Rhett. Listen, I haven't got many minutes left. Can you call me straight back on this number if it cuts off? Where are you? I've been trying to contact you for months. Is everything okay? Yes. Why shouldn't it be? You said you'd been trying to contact me. You're not knocked up, are you? No, Rhett, I'm not. Why are you calling me anyway? I'm walking the dogs. Dogs? I didn't know you had any dogs. Henry's dogs. Then I realized Rhett had never met you. It had been such a whirlwind romance, and I'd moved in with you soon after we met. He'd gone off traveling long before, and we had not even seen each other at Christmas. Did you get my Christmas card? I'm hoping to come back sometime in June. I hadn't received a card, and I'd redirected all my posts from the flat where I'd been living before I moved. It was just like Rhett to expect me to sit around waiting for him to return. Where are you now? I'm just about to leave Romania. There's a guy I met who has some work for me. Work? What kind of work? But the line went dead. I wasn't even sure what he did to earn money, and something prevented me asking, even though he was my brother. It was probably illegal or immoral. He'd never had a problem exploiting others. I was nearly home, so I thrust my frozen hands in my pockets and hurried up as I neared the house. After letting the dogs back in their pen, I kicked off my boots and stripped off my gloves, so I could redial Rhett's number and give him my full attention. It rang a few times before a woman answered. Rhett? It clearly wasn't Rhett, but I said his name anyway. The sound of a phone being passed from hand to hand scratched at my ear. Yeah, I'm here, sis. He sounded a bit breathless this time. I didn't know how to contact you, to tell you I'd moved. Text me your new address to this phone. Okay, but where are you? I won't be here much longer. Who are you with? What's that moaning sound? A muffled giggle and whispering in the background made me press the phone closer to my ear. Rhett, whose phone is this? Who are you with? Just promise me you'll text me your address. Soon, yeah? His distraction was even more noticeable. He said something in another language, 
the words muffled as if he were holding the phone against his skin. I couldn't catch what he said and didn't even know what language he was speaking. He could pick up languages without much effort, a gift I did not possess. Sis, are you still there? Who are you talking to? Rhett, what are you doing? You don't want to know. Christ, got to go, Scarlet. Text me. A louder giggle and some fumbling. Then it cut off with some short beeps. At least I knew he was alive. That was a relief. So that's why I totally forgot to tell you about the buzzard. Rhett had upstaged it, and it was him that played on my mind all evening. Whenever Rhett and I got together, we seemed to create some sort of chemical implosion, and his visits were always preceded by a phone call. Do you think he was having sex, I asked you. Who? Rhett. Do you think he was having sex while he was on the phone to me? Possibly. How should I know what he was doing? He sounded breathless. Maybe he was walking, briskly. You raised one eyebrow and winked at me. He shouldn't talk to me while he's having sex. You phoned him. What was he supposed to do? This is my brother you're talking about, my twin brother, whom you've never met. He just, well, he wouldn't do that to me. Would he? Scarlet, my darling, this is the same brother who hasn't contacted you for months, who disappears without a trace, not telling you where he's going or who he's with, and you think he'd have the foresight to pull out before answering the phone. I scowled at you, but I knew, Rhett. We were close once, closer than you'd ever imagine. He'd share everything with me. I felt it all unravelling, even then, but pushed it away as if ignorance were the best strategy. Snatched conversations with him were not enough. I needed something more substantial, time to really open up and talk about our past. Just Rhett and me, not you and I. But I'd have to wait until June, if he was true to his word. You lit the fire, and I watched the flames lick and spit. Whenever I thought of fire, I thought of Rhett. You know about how he got those scars, don't you? A sort of shared reminder of consequences, and our lingering past. Perhaps if he'd returned sooner, things would have turned out differently. Bitch! I spat the word into the air as I lay in bed that night. Whoever he was with, I decided to hate her. I'd never liked any of his girlfriends. The other voices landed on me, as if they had latched onto the venom in my remark. Whispers at first, followed by howling and cackling, like the rasping burn of an unreachable itch. Doesn't this story just give you goosebumps? Now we've caught a glimpse of the world Scarlet and Henry live in, surrounded by preserved creatures. But don't these hybrid creatures seem a little peculiar to you? Will Henry's work stop here? Will he continue to create these beasts? Will he let Felix D'Souza get into his head? Tune in to episode two to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast.
The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat Books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to Camcat Unwrapped, because Camcat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.